Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs. If the government can jam the entire withdrawal bill through the Commons in a single day, then we can certainly stuff the whole of Brexit into an hour. I'm Andrew Harrison and it's Supply Teacher Week on Romaniacs. Dorian Linsky is away, so I'm standing in for him while the regulars talk loudly at the back, throw tangerine peel and say things like, when are we going to get a proper presenter, sir? (laughs) (laughs) So, let's meet them. Naomi Smith is the Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain, who are campaigning to stop Brexit by any democratic means. She is here in a personal capacity, of course. Hello, Naomi. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? All right, not bad. We haven't had you on since the mail uncovered your dastardly plot to subvert Brexit by the Woodward and Bernstein-like <laughs> tactic of reading the About Us page <laughs> on your website. So what was it like to get dacred? Oh, I wish it would happen every week because we raised 65 grand. So, you know, every, every time they slag us off, we get richer. It's I absolutely wish, fine. I wish I could get dacred every day. <laughs> Indeed. Where the till start ringing and the band begins to play. Uh, it, did, it did immediately backfire, didn't it? Because yeah. what kind of things were people saying when they were donating to you? Well, long story short, we got wind of the splash about 6.15 on the uh, Wednesday evening and we just sort of, yeah, went straight into automatic mode of, great, okay, bring it on and set up the crowdfunder page by sort of 3am, everything was ready to go and we pitched it as help us take on the Daily Mail. They're trying to silence us and so we stuck, we've got lots of images of people that we use on all of our social media and we mocked up some stuff with Daily Mail strips across their mouths showing that they're being muzzled by the Daily Mail and yeah, and it it just, it goes viral from there. It's incredible how much the Daily Mail is hated by the people that want to give us money. Well, my bathroom is looking a bit ropey at the moment. And I'd just like to make it clear that I, I really hate Paul Dacre, so you can donate to me via PayPal, should you wish. Um, also with us, we have Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. How Hello. are you? Very well indeed. Thank you. Glad, glad, glad to hear it. With, uh, with Naomi and me, you ventured into my hood of Stoke Newington at the weekend for Romaniacs Live at the Stoke Newington Literary Festival. I didn't know it was your hood. It's um, my hood. Is that why we went? Because it was inconvenient. Because I can't. <laughs> yes, basically. And really hard for the rest <laughs> yeah. of us to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fucking nightmare. There's no connection there at all. Come on. It's the third most remote voting area after Lambeth and Gibraltar so you are amongst your people <laughs> did you enjoy the event? I did very much and I actually really liked St Newton I have to say and I actually sort of thought it's so hard to get there that it does actually feel quite villagey when you're there because you sort of you're kind of stuck there it's not on the bloody moon it's in, it's within London yeah well I mean it's, it's, it's hard two. to get to <laughs> no come on it's not the same tuners. it's just very very difficult to get to very very difficult to leave and that made it feel quite villagey quite nice yeah. I quite liked the whole sort of festival atmosphere I thought it was, it was pleasant uh, Naomi, how did you? Uh, how, how did we feel about all, all was being drawn by Martin Rosen? He he certainly found the least attractive aspects of all of us, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've probably had more flattering sketches done yeah. by people who are trying to sell me caricatures yeah. on a pavement in Spain or something um, on holiday. But yeah, uh, we managed to auction them off there and raise even more money for the refugee charity, so that was great. It was it was great. And Martin was a fantastic interviewee in his uh, in his Lenin cap. Um, in one of the sessions at the Stoke Newton Literary Festival, I was surprised to hear one speaker say, if you're looking for a villain in the referendum, then Jeremy Corbyn fits the bill. And got a round of applause and a cheer in Diane Abbott's very own constituency. Hmm. Well, you would have expected that to get a bit of hissing and booing. So yeah, it's, it's still a literary festival, though, isn't it? That's it's going to be yeah. quite. Yeah. yeah, we have a special guest with us today, John Elledge, with two ends, like the Martian Manhunter. He writes prolifically <laughs> for the New Statesman. He's not from Mars, though, and he edits the sibling site City Metric, which is a website about cities. His specialist subject is housing, and he also devotes his time to tormenting Ian on Twitter. So we thought he should come in here and do it in person. All right, John. Hello. How are you doing? All right, not bad. Welcome to Romaniacs. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're going to grill you on cities and Brexit a little bit later, but first, what is City Metric? What does it do? It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a New Statesman sister site that is largely about the tube map, mm. uh, which, wasn't, which wasn't the original plan, but it turns out that that, that, is, what, that is what the people want. 
want and you know we respect the will of the people <laughs> when they have spoken uh, I was going to point out Stoke Newington is on the tube map now so you really have nothing to, to yeah. complain about there so how do you mean it's on the tube map where I was mean, it it's on the tube map it's like this is actually not an interesting observation I'm making right now I should <laughs> yeah. really have saved this we're really working against the whole London centric <laughs> yeah. thing here in a massive yeah. massive way yeah. city metric covers transport architecture mm. demographics see, the, uh, the sort of, I describe it as like the human world but it's kind of it's whatever I want it to be the human on any world. given day really I don't want to go to the human world um, <laughs> we talk here a lot about the division in between city and not city uh, as being a driver of the division in, in, in our society. Do you think that's true? Is it borne out by anything other than crude things like a map of who voted where in Brexit? I, I think it kind of becomes this sort of self-fulfilling uh, definition. Like, I did, a, I did, I did my, uh, an edition of my own podcast, which is available from all the fine podcasts out there, <laughs> Skylines, the other day with, uh, with Lisa Nandy, the, the MP for yeah. Wigan, about her new project, The Centre for Towns. It's a think tank she's helped to launch. Yeah. And she was describing Wigan, her own seat, as, as a town. She gets very angry when I point out it's part of Greater Manchester. She has given me <laughs> death stares because of that. Um, but she also, in the same in the same conversation, described Cambridge as a city. And it's there are, those two places are about the same population. So it kind of feels to me like we've got to the point where we're sort of defining cities as being the places that aren't very Brexit sometimes. If it's, it's not about population or even charter. It's about what is your... Do you have an urban city mindset and set of values? There's a, yeah, there's a psychological aspect to it. Like, if you kind of look at the big metropolitan areas in England, the one that stands out politically is, is the West Midlands because it's more, like, it's the least labour, it's the, the most marginal, the most likely to go for the Tories. It was also the most Brexity. Those two things probably correlate. Mm. There's a third thing which I sometimes wonder if it correlates to, but I've got no way of proving it, which is it's also very... It's very car-based. You have to drive everywhere. It's sort of very suburban in form and therefore, I think, outlook in a way that I don't think Greater Manchester or, or Merseyside, for example, are. So I, I have no idea if this is a remotely true thing I'm saying right now, but it's, it's, the, it's the kind of nonsense that I spout, <laughs> so that's really what I'm it here It sounded for. quite convincing. Is the explanation for that sort of different perspective, is it the obvious one that cities tend to be younger, more multicultural, and obviously Cambridge more educated, literally many of them are built on students, uh, you know, as as opposed to the older, uh, you know, less kind of um, university educated, you know, non city areas, is that is that a caricature? Really, we're looking at it. No, I mean that's a that's that's a huge that's a huge factor. You, you get in trouble if you kind of use this this phrase, the left behinds, mm. um, for you know very good reason. It can sound quite patronising, but I think we sometimes kind of read it a bit wrongly and if you look at a lot of the places a lot of the kind of small towns are the Wiggins of the world they are left behind in the sense that literally anybody who has gone off to university will tend not to come back yeah. because there aren't any graduate level jobs there so you know by definition the people in these places tend to be older they are less likely to have uh, degrees so even if they're kind of asset rich, they're not necessarily sort of income rich. So it does kind of lead to this kind of very different sort of mm -hmm. outlook, I think. Mm -hmm. And John Curtis is very keen to always stress that income is not an indicator when it comes to leave and remain. It's education. And he gets quite sort of angry if you mm. suggest that there's an income link. And he says that that, that doesn't bear out at all, that it's, it's really about education. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to be talking to John throughout the show. But first, last week we asked you, the listeners, how you would, quote, celebrate 
celebrate, close quotes, Brexit Day. Now that Big Ben won't bong and Romaniac sleeper agents have sabotaged those amazing Brexit stamps who we're going to get. We asked you to use the hashtag Brexit Day so that A, we can find it, and B, it will keep popping up in a year's time and annoying the kippers. Twitter follower C. Yvonne said she would celebrate, or he would celebrate, with spam cabbage that's been boiled for a couple of hours, instant mash, and a photograph of a banana. The actual banana is preserved and put on display in the Tower of London. Rob Redmond <laughs> would celebrate by ripping off EU signs on our great British car number plates. Andy Howe suggested a 1973-themed party with horrid 70s food, <laughs> crappy medium dry wine, and a beige polyester dress code music by Wings. Sounds actually quite good to me. I would go to that party. Well, the T-shirt winner was David Whittam, who said he would spend the day at Heathrow with a blue marker pen, colouring in passports as people return to the UK. <laughs> David, your T-shirt is on the way via British Royal Mail. We're going to get to the Brexit news after a couple of reminders. If you missed our most recent live show in Stoke Newington, don't worry, because our Patreon backers got a live recording sent to them the very next day. And if you sign up to back us on the crowdfunding platform, you'll get access to 90 minutes of live Ramoning too. Patreon supporters can also get the stylish Romaniacs Don't Blame Me, I Voted Remain mug, so you can annoy colleagues as you drink your Europhile coffee, plus T-shirts and tote bags. Plus, we always give Patreon backers first access to tickets to our next live shows, and we've got an announcement coming up very soon. Go to patreon.com slash RomaniacsCast to find out more. And if you want to help out right now, why not give us a review and a star rating on Apple Podcasts? It's the best way to help other people find the show. OK, Dr Fact is at the door. For God's sake, let the man in. Let's have the Brexit news. <laughs> First up, movement at last from Labour on the single market. Corbyn's team will table amendments looking for, quote, full access, close quotes, to the single market when the withdrawal bill comes back to the Commons. More on that later. Some Remainers were solidly unimpressed when it emerged that Labour would abstain on membership of the EEA, the Norway option, which would have entailed full access to the single market, contributions to the EU budget and, crucially, free movement. Keir Starmer said Labour was seeking our own more ambitious agreement. Bet you are. Uh, <laughs> conversely, Tom Newton Dunn, political editor of The Sun, tweeted, Labour's withdrawal bill amendments really only amount to one substantial thing. Corbyn has won an internal tussle to shoot down EEA membership. Corbynists should realise this is a hardening of Brexit, not a softening. Everything is a hardening, not a softening to the Brexiters, it seems. Ian, this phrase, full access to the single market, we've said loads of times on this show that Labour is asking for things that aren't on the, on the menu and that the EU would reject. Is this the same here? Because you seem a bit optimistic about it, actually. Yeah, I mean, well, full access is on the menu. It just happens to be on the menu for every single country on earth because it just means can you trade with the single market and the answer to that question is yes mm. um, so it's usually it's the coward's way out as a phrase you can say access doesn't really mean anything yeah, but it sounds like it's just yeah. exactly exactly in is the word you're looking for is in yeah. or membership like, and you'll I've got, notice I've got access to play for England in the World Cup <laughs> but I'm not going to yeah. <laughs> no exactly right so you, if, if you listen to Starmer this morning Wednesday morning um, on the Today programme he almost it, it's like he just dances around the words in and membership and just won't go there. He won't actually use th those words. Yeah. However, I thought the, the Newton Dunn assessment was wrong. I thought um, the assessment by a lot of Remainers uh, was wrong, especially sort of, uh, I presume they're saying it for their own sort of internal reasons, especially Remainers, you know, in the Labour Party, who were sort of suggesting, well, we could have won the EEA, but now it's and that, the EEA amendment and now it's gone. And it, just to be clear, there was no chance of that amendment passing. OK, so right. yesterday morning we woke up, the EEA amendment was not going to pass. Yesterday evening we went to bed, the amendment was not going to pass. So he didn't sabotage something that was about to happen. I feel like we lost nothing yesterday. So the question then becomes, what did we gain? And in terms of the gain, there's very little concrete to point to, I accept. But there is a shift in tone. It's very interesting they started using the word internal market uh, rather than single market. There was 
this sort of when you take the six tests, these impossible to satisfy six tests of having the exact same benefits of the single market and that being the condition upon which Labour will support the eventual Brexit deal, that kind of language, slightly altered, is now being directly connected to the single market in this amendment. And again, that makes it almost impossible for Labour to come out and support or to abstain when that deal comes in. In the short term, not much is gained, but there's some slight improvement. In the long term, I think we're getting into the position where it's very hard to see Labour back in that motion when it comes back. And that, to me, adds up to a pretty good day. OK. I mean, I saw a lot of people saying, you know, crying Schrodinger's Brexit when it emerged that Corbyn is saying he wants his access to the single market to include the right for Britain to negotiate its own trade deals as well. So you're in and you're out. It's hokey-cokey Brexit. Well, that's on the customs... So they've always had that thing on the okay. customs union. We can be in the customs union and negotiate our trade deals. You, you can't do that. Well, I mean, you could do it if you don't want to mess around with your tariffs. But if you don't mess around with your tariffs, especially in agriculture, there's no way anyone's going to give you some kind of trade deal on penetration for your financial services. On the single market as well, they want to be in, but they don't want state aid, which they're never going to be able to negotiate that. And they don't want freedom of movement. I think they may be able to negotiate some kind of minor reform there. Look, of course it's unicorn land, because that's the land that we're in. <laughs> yeah. But what they're doing is the same thing that Tories are doing, which is trying to find formulations of words that they can get everyone to sign up to at the same time. And on that basis, it feels like they've managed to get those three main Labour tribes, Lexit leadership, right-wing anti-free movement backbenchers, and the centrist, sort of centrist pro-Remain guys, mm. moving forwards towards a more soft, soft Brexit position, slowly but surely, but together. Yeah, Nomi, what's your take on this? One? Well, since just before we came on air, there was a Conservative amendment tabled um, about access to EEA and EFTA. And interestingly, it was signed by 12 Tory rebels. This is for the trade bill, isn't it, by the way? Yeah. yeah. And so, and this is, and the, the interesting thing about that is that the new name in that is Caroline Spellman. So she had, she wasn't part of the Tory rebels at mm. the end of last year. Mm. So that's interesting in and of itself. Um, on the on the Labour amendment, of course, it it may not be taken, and and the Labour leadership are kind of assuming that it will, but it might not be. Hmm. Um, so I don't think they can assume that their amendment will be taken, and I can't really see the front bench supporting a Tory rebel amendment, which hooks them ever more to EEA. And the other interesting thing was that um, Chuka this morning, and this is Wednesday morning on the Today programme, did talk quite a bit about polling showing that all across the country a majority of Labour voters voted to remain in the EU. Um, so he was sort of saying that there would be the numbers for Labour MPs and Tory rebels to win a vote next week to stay in the EEA. Um, so I know that YouGov have done a lot of polling um, on this seat-by-seat -seat analysis and some of that's been leaked in the paper over the last few weeks, uh, particularly in, in Labour seats, showing just how much they have to lose and how little they have to gain by not full-on coming out for Remain. Yeah. Um, so I think... I think Ian's right. There is this sort of shift, 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 slowly inching towards a different uh, position. But yeah, the Labour amendment in and of itself said absolutely nothing new. John, what, I mean, what do you make of this? Is it, is it becoming at all possible to discern a shape of a Labour Brexit policy rather than just sort of platitudes like jobs free Brexit, uh, job, you know, jobs first Brexit? I know they said jobs free Brexit, though, which is actually more accurate. <laughs> that is where we're going, <laughs> isn't we're it? We're going yeah. for a jobs free Brexit, yes. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think I'm the wrong person to ask about this because, like, when when um, that story appeared, I think it was Henry Zephan from the Times first reporting this yesterday. When I read it, I thought I was over the moon. I thought this is this this sounds like a really big deal. This sounds like this sounds like great news. And then other people were like, "Yeah, that's that's not what's going on. It's just it's a fudge. It's more fudge. It's always just more fudge." Mm. And it occurred to me, like, I am 
exactly the kind of person that the Labour leadership is hoping to fool with this bullshit. <laughs> I am I am the naive soft left mark that they're trying to keep on board. Right. With so the only the slight difference that I'm not group. actually an MP. But you know, it's, it's, yeah. I'm I'm the one I'm the kind of person they're trying to fool. So you're like so, the one woman focus group in the thick of it. They should just have you in this room and say, John, what do you think? And if you it seems all right, yeah, steam I, ahead. If I fall for it, then <laughs> I mean I kind of I, I can never quite decide how much effort I should be expending trying to unpick this stuff because I can never quite shake off this feeling that a lot of it is is the positions are changing. Yeah. It's quite sort of jargony. It's quite incoherent. It probably isn't going to affect where Labour policy is going to go, let alone where the country is going to go. So sometimes I worry like, spending too much time trying to work out Labour's Brexit policy is a bit like trying to learn Klingon. It's just like, you know, you, <laughs> it's just all that intellectual effort and then no one can understand you. I yeah. don't really sort of quite see the point in it. I, I sort of feel the Remainers aren't pleased enough with themselves, which is not something we get to say very often <laughs> about ourselves. But inside and outside the Labour Party, they have been pummeling Labour, the Labour leadership, for the last few weeks on the EEA stuff. That's been going on in all in all parts. You know, you look at the sort of Chukar and Munna stuff, you look at um, what was going on with the left anti-Brexit guys sort of around the trade unions and even some former Momentum people pushing, 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 pushing. And what they're getting is a shift now. And all of this works in tandem. So that Tory amendment's really, really helpful. It's for the trade bill, which, of course, hasn't been, we don't know when that's going to come to the Commons. So there's time in between this and that to keep on making those pushes and to hopefully try to trigger some kind kind of sort of bidding war where the Labour leadership feels it has to give more and more and more to placate the rebels within its own party and without. It seems to me like we're in a pretty sweet spot for that right now. But, but so a major, how... uh, a major party having to give more and more and more to placate an unruly set of rebels within its own set. Does that remind you of any government, for instance? <laughs> yeah, exactly. very, it's become the There's very, a lot of it about. Yeah, yeah. sorry, Johnny, you right to say. I mean, I, I'm just, I can't quite work out to what extent this is just like one of those sort of matters of principle that Jeremy Corbyn said was on because for a long time my read of him was like his instincts were leave but he also didn't care that much mm-hmm. and like if, if, if push came to shove and it turns out that like you know the thing he needs to do to get into government and bring about a socialist utopia is to back remain he, he will do that but he's not moved as far as I thought he would it feels like it would have been expedient by now to be a bit further along this journey than he actually is. So I'm starting to wonder if maybe he feels more strongly about this than I, I thought he did. I think it's useful, well at least I've just started talking about the Labour leadership because I, it's, it's always hard to tell what's coming from him, what's coming from Milne, what's coming from McDonnell, what's coming from some of the other people around them. So that's the tough part. And then the other part is of course they've got to keep the right wing of the Labour Party on board, especially those with northern constituencies who think that free movement is toxic, who won't shift on it. And that includes some quite surprising people. You know, I mean people with the, the most readers, most listeners of this thing would probably be quite sympathetic towards as Labour MPs. And just for that, they're trying to keep everyone together a bit. That's why the wording is always so mercurial and, and requires so much criminology. But nevertheless, what matters is direction of travel. And direction of travel, to me at the moment, with cautious optimism, seems pretty good. OK, well, moving on. Speaking about that withdrawal bill earlier, see you next Tuesday. The government has stunned everyone this week by announcing that the bill, which took such a mauling in the Lords, would return to the Commons next Tuesday for a whole day's debate. The Lords famously dealt 15 defeats to the government on the bill in a series of debates that took place over a period of three weeks. They included the form of the meaningful vote in the Commons, removing the exec day, limiting ministers' power to alter regulations and a whole lot more, but apparently this can all be reversed in a single day of robotic voting. <laughs> Naomi, put, us this, put this in contact for us. What's, what's, what's well, going on? I mean, the context is that there's absolutely no shortage of parliamentary time because the government aren't, well parliament isn't (laughs) due to talk about anything but 
fucking Brexit. Yes. Uh, and all the, you know, stuff about actually fixing the country's problems is not, you know, is getting put on the back burner and is not being debated. So there is absolutely no shortage of parliamentary time um, because there's no substantive legislation before Parliament you know, hasn't been since the general election last year because their mandate got shot to pieces and the cabinet is completely divided over Brexit. Um, and so this is just frankly completely outrageous uh, when the government, you know, <laughs> has no other parliamentary business yes. to be doing. Um, in terms of what might happen... Um, what I'm hearing from various different MPs is that there are going to be lots of rebellions, um, that there are lots of them now saying, you know, we, we will defy the whip next week, whichever way the whip goes, and we, we don't know where the whips are going to be and whether Labour are going to whip to abstain and things like that on various different amendments. But that more and more Labour MPs in particular are saying things like, I, I've got to put the country first this yeah. time, this time I, I've, got, I've got to rise above that and rebel. So, yeah, so, all to play for. Anyway, the whip goes doesn't really matter. So we'll see, I suppose. Um, I, it does seem pretty blatant, though, that you would attempt to take all of this stuff and just not even bother with the lip service of a more detailed debate than division, division, division. I mean, we saw the letter. Everybody's been warned to stay on site at all times. <laughs> expect, the, expect to be WhatsApped to death by the whips. There's going to be barely any time to read out the preliminaries before there's a division, isn't there? Yeah, but this is, I mean, in terms of the stay on, stay on the estate, you know, be ready for when the whips call you. That's pretty bog standard for any kind of uh, legislation that, you know, there's going to be whipped. Although, to be fair, there's been so little of that that I suppose people may have gotten a little bit rusty <laughs> about the procedure. I'm not sure they're even accomplishing anything by making it so quick. I don't know how many people are really going to sit in that debating chamber and be moved one way or the other by having a proper debate about it. It just sort of looks panicky and over-eager. Yeah, but it's not that, for that them, is it? It's for the country. It's so we can actually see people stand up on their hind legs and commit themselves, wed themselves to this very divisive position. I agree, but I mean, even from the motivations that the government has, I'm not sure that it is satisfying. Okay. Oh, in terms of the actual moral case, <laughs> that is obviously a very difficult one I to make. The moral but case. I, yeah, I, I kind of haven't even bothered to consider so that. So quaint. Yeah. Yes. It's just panicky and over-eager sounds like a fairly good description of Britain's beloved Prime Minister, doesn't it? I mean, it's just like everything she does, she seems to do in the most sort of panicky, difficult, yeah. self-defeating way. So I sort of assumed it was just about kind of like, well, if I just condense it all into like one really horrible day and then I can get on with my life yeah it's it's just like then on Wednesday I'll wake up the sun will be shining the birds will be singing and everything will be lovely I, I kind of wonder if it's just purely about that and there's no political calculation at it's all the, it's the tearing off of the sticking plaster from your sensitive region in yeah. one quick go Eat, eating the shit sandwich in one gulp basically yeah. and okay. then everyone it, can get on with watching the World Cup it, <laughs> is, it is staggeringly hypocritical I have to say it is staggeringly hypocritical I mean after when you just had week, maybe what two months of going on and on about two customs options that were already rejected by the EU and no one could support. And then it's gone, oh, no, but we actually do have to do all of these in just 12 hours. And you yeah. sort of think, like, you have been wasting a lot of time to suddenly become tremendously efficient. It's quite quite shameful behaviour. But they can get away with it because, like, they know that normal people don't pay attention to parliamentary timetables. Mm. In fact, you know, a lot of people probably think Brexit's sort of already happened. Yeah. yeah. So, like, they can do this shit because the only people who are going to get angry about it are the kind of people who are already angry. The, the, the question then becomes... What are they going to win? Now, I think the EEA stuff is not a risk. I think they're probably going to lose that customs vote. Um, now, the customs vote is quite... You can wriggle out of it pretty easily. It wasn't about staying in customs union. It was about getting a minister to come and update the commons much later on on efforts to stay within the customs union, which seems pretty clear-cut, but there's enough wriggle room there for a government to get out of it. In any normal scenario, losing that vote on such a key part of, of your of your 
proposals would be enough to make a prime minister resign in any normal scenario. It's absolutely unthinkable she would stay on, but I predict that she would try and stay on because she clearly has no sense of shame. By the time that you know the election happened, she stayed on. You would have thought there, there is nothing that will make this woman resign unless they you know put her out of that room by her by her by her ankles. The final part then is the meaningful vote in yeah, Parliament, yeah. and that is the key thing to me. Nothing. I don't really care about any of the other amendments. No, not the questions. Nothing right. else. It's that, and that's again the long game. What happens if MPs vote down that motion on the final deal and controlling that, putting that in the hands of Parliament, that to me is, is, is where the action's at. So I was about to ask, what sort of a defeat? Because there's 15 amendments here. Hmm. How many of them would need to fall to produce an exciting proper governmental constitutional crisis like we've been holding out for? I don't think any of them... I, mean, I think they're going to give up on the meaningful vote stuff ahead of time, so yeah. I don't think they're even going to fight it, which is a huge, a huge, huge thing to happen. Uh-huh. The only one that could possibly do it then would be the EEA or Customs Union. I don't think EEA has any chance. And on Customs Union, I think they'll wriggle out and they'll pretend that it was just... You know, basically, you've asked us to give a signal for some kind of customs partnership later on. <laughs> I think they'll, they'll wriggle and squirm their yeah. way out of that one, even though they have absolutely no right to whatsoever. Speaking of Parliament, what do we make of them debating... Uh, Dominic Cummings and the notion of summonsing Cummings for his behaviour after he's basically, in as many words, told them to fuck off. So this is absolutely unprecedented yes. in our lifetime. Like this is Dominic this is, Cummings this tells is people unpre- to fuck off all the time. Yeah, but you're not Parliament. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't be a bad and Parliament. I, I, well, I think it's it's worth sort of giving a bit of an honourable mention at this stage to now. I always get them mixed up. Dominic Cummings is bad. Damien Collins is good. Mm. Right. So really. <laughs> Similar net, right. So, Damien Collins chairs the DCMS committee, okay. and that committee, you know, that committee has been paying an absolute blinder with this. I think it's absolutely mm. fantastic that they've managed to, you know, get Parliament to do this on behalf of the Commons. Um, and why that I think is particularly interesting is because that, you know, that is a Conservative-led committee doing this. Yeah. So the optics of it are very, very interesting mm. uh, in terms of what it means for the government. So yeah. Good on them. What can they do to Dominic Cummings, the bad Dominic? Uh, well, you know, yeah. he's basically said, "I'm not interested in, in your inquiries into what I may or may not have done." Um, are they going to invent a new retrospective offence of supervillainy or something? I mean, how can they possibly? <laughs> as far as I'm aware, and I may be wrong on this, the most that Parliament can do is to admonish a person, which, as John says quite properly, we are admonished five times an hour on Twitter every day. I uh, thought that there was some kind of really archaic. Can they hang Sort it? of thing. Now, I th- I can they get hanged, can't they? Isn't this... this I think there is some kind of really archaic... Thing, but but it's, it hasn't been used for 300 years or some nonsense like that. You know, chuck them in the cell beneath the commons. You know, this if, kind of if you say they can hang him, there is a very good chance we can make this a fact by the end of the week. So <laughs> we don't people want will believe They can this. hang him. Okay. <laughs> we just yeah. want to ban him from driving his sheep across, the, the, across London Bridge the, or something. <laughs> The legislation covering what they actually uh, did wrong is pretty pretty vague and weak in its redress. Um, so I don't think they'll actually be able to nail them on the actual 2015 legislation. Um, but, you know, a, a likely outcome is that a few people in the Vote Leave campaign might end up you know, facing criminal prosecution. Yeah. That, in that, that's not impossible. Mm. Well, be interested to see how that one plays out. Finally, cast your mind back to the distant past of Sunday and the revelations of doomsday Brexit scenarios in the Sunday Times. Itself a pretty pro-Brexit newspaper. A series of studies on the consequences of a no-deal Brexit, commissioned for David Davis, were leaked to the paper, which ensured that at least someone had read them because David Davis certainly wouldn't. The so-called interministerial group on preparedness determined that Britain would be hit with food and medicine shortages within two weeks of leaving the European Union if a Brexit 
Brexit deal isn't reached. The civil servants worked out three scenarios, mild, severe and one called Armageddon. <laughs> the scenarios are so explosive that they have only been shared with a handful of ministers and are, quotes, locked in a safe. Uh, our favourite detail was that the port of Dover collapses on day one in only the second worst version. <laughs> <laughs> what happens in the first... And, and the worst version is threads. Um, supermarkets in Cornwall and Scotland will run out of food within a couple of days and hospitals will run out of medicine within two weeks. Presumably the third version entails plagues of both boils and rains of Pepe the Frog. Um, so this produced the you know expected frenzy of poo-pooing from the Brexiters. Ian, firstly, how credible is the doomsday Brexit warning? Oh, yeah, it's perfectly credible. I mean, if there's no deal, it's hard to see how you actually manage to keep it working because there's no, we haven't done anything with the infrastructure. So in terms of what do you do with lorries that are waiting, what do you do with basic sort of customs infrastructure? This is the thing, right? If you leave, if you leave the single market, your goods have not been checked to be up to the same standards as what's going on in there. It doesn't matter that nothing has changed from one day to the other. What matters is you're in a new regulatory environment and that means that things have to be put to one side and checked. And that holds lorries up. And as soon as you start doing this, very, very quick supply lines, you will get tailbacks and those tailbacks will quickly become quite catastrophic. And eventually the same thing happens with things like medicine and blah, blah. So all of this is completely credible. We got this extraordinary... If you notice the Brexit response to this in the media this week was, was quite extraordinary. Because they were contradicting themselves within the same sentence. They would say things like, look, this is just project fear nonsense. Of course people have got to do checks to make sure that, you know, this stuff's under control. And you sort of think like, well, no, hold on a minute. If you're doing that kind of check to work out how what would take place, that means it is not project fear nonsense. Yeah. It is an assessment of what you think might take place. It can either be one thing or another. It's project fear or it's your assessment of how things would work out. But you can't say that there are two things within the same sentence at the same time and expect anyone to take you seriously ever again. Although, of course, they do say yeah. these things at the same time and people do somehow bafflingly take them seriously again in the future. Armageddon sounds a bit worrying. And it's not good when the civil service is using the language of 1970s Doctor Who, is it? I mean, this is like, what do we know what is in the Armageddon scenario by Douglas Adams? Do we know what's, what, what the, the next worst... We version? didn't get any of that, did we? We no, only got, yeah, yeah, only got option it. two, yeah. 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 I mean, in? the government just veer from doing absolutely no planning at all to planning for doomsday. So I think shambles is probably quite a polite word to yeah. uh, you know even use. Um, and they've got to release the document and let the British public see the unvarnished truth for themselves. Um, you know, they can't say that they recognise this part or that part um, if they don't fine release the report and let the public judge because otherwise you know what they're afraid of hmm. John you're an infrastructure man and this is to an extent a rhetorical question how well prepared is our infrastructure for instance needing to concrete over Kent <laughs> oh it's, the- it's fine <laughs> everything's fine I, I kind of have I think an issue with 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 these kind of apocalyptic predictions is that they are so ridiculous and so terrifying your mind just instantly goes Oh, well, obviously that can't happen. Yeah. Mm. Is that I think we have the same problem with, like, you know, climate change or all the bees dying, all those kind of things, all the many things that may wipe out the human race possibly within the next 20 years. They're so big, you can't quite get your head around it. And you just kind of assume on some level, well, this is so ridiculous, the government couldn't possibly let this happen, so someone must be doing something about it. And the frightening thing is, I think that's also what David Davis is thinking right now. Someone else will David, you're the someone, David. You're the guy. It's you. That guy is called David Davis. <laughs> what, I, what I would genuinely like, maybe Ian will know this, what I would genuinely like to know is, 
We know that the port of Dover is going to collapse. Are the French preparing a Calais? What's happening in Rotterdam? Like, are, there, are there preparations going on on the other side? So the understanding is that the Dutch are well ahead on this kind of stuff and that the French are not, insofar as I understand it right now. There's also, I mean, the, for instance, we... Because, of course, all we're going to do is just throw open our borders on everything. You know, that'll be our response to it. Just go, like, oh, fuck. So, you know, <laughs> border voted for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They love that. So we're going to throw up our borders to sausages and cheese and put them up to people. Because, no, you would have to... You, OK, so we've always had our borders up to people in that you've always got to go through some kind of passport ah. check or whatever, you know, mm. at that point. We would absolutely say that free movement, I think, at that point, because there's no immigration bill to, to replace it, because even though they're very, very quick on, you know, Commons amendments, <laughs> they're not so quick on producing <laughs> legislation. So at the moment, we'd have to say that free movement would continue as before until we replace it. We'd have the EU withdrawal bill would be passed, so all the existing laws would have been copied and pasted over. So, yeah, we would throw open our borders and just go, everything's fine. Please do the same. There's no evidence that, for instance, France would do that. There's no evidence many, many other countries would do it either. Exciting times. Um, Naomi, this is another incidence of of, uh, frog boiling, isn't it? If this had come out of the blue, a super terrifying set of government reports uh, had come out of the blue and under normal circumstances, Mm. it would be resignation matters, it would be public inquiries. But under our current circumstances, it's just just another thing. It's just another thing they're not publishing you know we had the impact assessments that they didn't publish now we've got this which has been leaked a bit but not properly published and yeah you're right you know the substance of this is life or death you know this is talking about life-saving drugs not being made available to people within a couple of weeks under a a crash out scenario Um, of course in any normal times this would be exactly the sort of thing that would collapse the government and of course because of these crazy bloody times we live in now it's just yet another thing you chalk up to the craziness of Brexit even the couple of weeks might be too generous because if you think about your atom and what is required there for France to legally be able to send us radioactive isotopes that would go off the next day Right. And the life, sort of the half-life of those isotopes is about sort of 30 hours for right. lots of the stuff that's used for cancer screening, not, not so much for treatment. So I, I, if there's something that's more horrific in the Armageddon scenario, I, I think it would probably have to do with the use of radioactive isotopes in, in health mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. quickly that would we, would we would lose supply there. You can get this stuff from Russia. You can get it from South Africa. The trouble is, again, once it takes those much longer journeys because the half-life is so short, you find yourself in an awful lot of bother. But I, I don't know how, if you're out of your atom and you haven't set up any kind of associate membership and you haven't replicated it at home, mm. on what legal basis France would be able to send us those isotopes through the Eurotunnel. I, I don't understand how they would be able to do it for Stop. I'm just amazed at the notion that a vote that was supposed to bring back control will mean we've got to import radioactive materials from Russia. <laughs> and I'm also envisioning... <laughs> They're often quite keen to send those. They are. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Just, just hang, hang, it, hang around in Salisbury. Go yeah. around it too. Yeah, you get people, yeah. Um, but also, uh, on a more serious level, I wonder how that would play with the very health-conscious, slightly older readerships of the Brexit press. You know, every every front page of the mail that isn't about treachery and Brexit is about new cancer treatments. And if suddenly the thing they've enabled stops your your cancer treatments or your dad's cancer treatment, it's not going to play very well, is it? No, in fact, what they find over and over again is that the arguments that work best with soft leave are ones based around effect on health service and effect on sort of drugs. If you look at what we lose with you know the European Medicines Agency about being able to put new drugs on the market, mm-hmm. about the effects on uh, vets in the UK. I mean, lots of these kind of arguments. When you get away from financial passports and customs and, and free movement and you start addressing these weird esoteric conse- sort of second stage, third stage consequences, especially in health, that's when you can start changing people's minds. But the people going to join it up? Because, I mean, my big fear here is that 
you'll get Daily Mail head, uh, front pages about how, oh, look, evil Brussels is not yeah, sending yeah, exactly. us cancer treatments exactly, anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the people just never take responsibility for their actions on this stuff. Our special guest this week is John Elledge of the New Statesman and City Metric, the site that covers the present and future of cities. Hello again, John. Hello, how are we doing? Uh, we're doing very well. We wanted to ask you about what Brexit means for housing and city life. But first, we have to ask you about your favourite Brexit of Dan Hannon, because you're quite the oh, Dan yeah. Hannon fanboy, aren't you? Got yeah, yeah we, go, we go way back. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, 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 I think I'm probably the world's foremost Hannonologist, <laughs> having written... I don't know how many columns I wrote about him, but it's, it's over 20 at this point. It's like... <laughs> What what makes him so special for you? What makes him your uh, Harry Styles? I mean, it's those. It's just those eyes, isn't it? No, it's um. So so the the, the origins of of Hannon fodder, as we infuriatingly decided to call it, was like we just had a sort of a general chat about you know just new stuff we could do, silly stuff we could do on the website. And I had this ridiculous idea that I would do a sort of a left-wing version of Quentin Letts' 50 People Who Buggered Up Britain. But the joke would be that every week it was Daniel Hannon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and myself and, and, and Helen Lewis fell around laughing at this one and everyone else just looked baffled. But luckily, Helen is my boss. Yes. <laughs> so, so I got that one. For, I, and I wrote, I, I wrote the first one and it got such a response... And I sort of had tweeted, oh, well, if people like this, it might, it might become a regular thing. And, like, it got such a response that it was like, OK, clearly this is, this is now my life. Mm. And so many people were sort of sending me sort of examples of whatever shittery he'd pushed out this week. Or telling me, you know, telling me he was at a meeting around the corner and I should go down. You know, basically stalking yeah. him on my behalf. <laughs> and this went on for about three months after I stopped writing the bloody column. People yeah. were still just sort of like, the man can't fart without half a dozen people on Twitter telling me what he's up to. He was particularly good this week when he said that one of the reasons that Switzerland he told the, part, the European Parliament that one of the reasons Switzerland is prospering so much is because it's not part of the common fisheries policy. <laughs> so that, you know, but we're, we're all been so annoyed about that Swiss trawler fleet taking British fish, haven't we? It's just baffling. I kind of, I, I, it's cargo cult intellectualism. Like he uses the kind of forms of intellectual discourse <laughs> and stuffs it with all these kind of historical references and quotes from like mm. dead Romans and so on. But there's none of the actual sort of like inquiry in it because he's always using this stuff to build towards a conclusion that he, he reached in about 1988. Okay. He's never sort of stress testing his ideas by standing there going, Am I, is it possible I'm wrong about this? Yeah. So he's kind of, you know, that, that infuriating phrase, like stupid person's idea of a clever person. Yeah. That's, mm. that's Daniel Hammond. Mm. He's someone who looks and sounds like an intellectual. Yeah. But, you know, it's just, it just falls over at the slightest. To me, his speaking voice is Arthur Dent in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's sort of very peevish, quite well brought up and very punctilious, but sort of not quite on top of things. <laughs> well, a, a friend of mine on the, on, on the right told me that he did have this sort of slightly hypnotic quality to him. And, that, and this is how he kind of been able to sort of win over a bunch of sort of relatively sane centre-right people to the Brexit cause. Mm. And so like the first couple of times I was sort of like watching his speeches or reading his articles, I was like... Every time I would find myself going, oh, that's quite a reasonable point, actually. I would have a panic attack. It's like, is this how it starts? Am I getting turned around here? Mm. So, yeah. You, did, you met him at, at one point. Yeah, so I, ga I gave up after doing this for about six months. I gave up just because like, someone at a, a student media conference asked me if I was worried it looked like bullying. And it's like, well... <laughs> Oh Christ! That's not that was not the point of the exercise, uh, but also I was starting to repeat myself, and like he's 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 got a certain bag of tricks that he comes back to. Um, so I stopped, but then on the train up to Tory conference last year, with no particular sort of 
agenda to it other than just sort of wanting to hang around and find out what people were talking about. I had this idea that maybe I would like track him down and force him to pose for a selfie. <laughs> and as with all the worst ideas, well, I tweeted it and enough people got in- invested in this idea. It's like, oh shit, now this is my life again. Now, yeah. And again, just like endless people sending me DMs saying, he's over here, quick, get him. <laughs> so yeah, I, I sat at this event where he was speaking and I, was sort of, I thought he kept sort of looking at me in a slightly awkward way. And I know he's aware of the column because several of my friends have asked him about it and he refused to discuss it. So I thought he was kind of like giving me knowing glances. And I went up at the end and said, um, do, you mind, uh, do you mind if I get a selfie? And he went, oh, wouldn't you rather a photograph? Oh, very well, fine, whatever. <laughs> and, and it's only then I thought, he doesn't know who I am. Mm. I've been like obsessing about this man for the last nine months <laughs> of my life. Love. Yeah. And he hasn't got the faintest idea. He clearly like muted me ages ago. Has no idea what they look like, and just thinks I'm some weirdo Brexit fanboy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's not an impossible thought. Yeah. So, well, so, so yeah. So, so your so your love was consummated. Anyway, serious stuff. Serious stuff. Housing and Brexit. And we talked a little bit earlier about how Brexit relates to the the city and the country divide. And there is a severe housing crisis, which is news to nobody. But it affects the young rather than the old, and the young predominantly voted remain. So, is it a mistake to cite the housing crisis as a driver of Brexit? Yes, I think so. I, I, I haven't really thought about it very much, but I instinctively don't think that's that's the root cause. I think I think housing is a big factor in this of the more general malaise we're in, which has pushed people not only to Brexit, but also to like you know, the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, mm. or the rise of UKIP as a sort of protest vote before, before Brexit was a serious proposition. I, I think there is a definite sense abroad that people are just pissed off Hmm. because it's 10 years since the crash wages are not rising particularly fast if at all living standards have flatlined and if you're if if you graduated in 2008 was before the big fees but if you graduated in 2008 you kind of came into this crash and you've not really sort of got anywhere but like if you graduated like five years after that you've got 40 50 grand of debt and then there's no career opportunities Mm -hmm. and you can't get a bloody house so yeah obviously people are are pissed off, but I think for the demographic reasons you've already sort of cited, it tends to be the most Brexity people will tend to own their homes. Yeah. So I don't think the fact that you can't buy a small flat in Zone Two for anything less than about six hundred grand or whatever it is yeah. is is the main is the main driver here. And yet the continuing the continuing rhetoric of the hard Brexit is is that um, the country's too full. That's why there aren't enough houses. Um, once we've got rid of, uh, you know, any freedom of movement, uh, resources will be more plentiful. It's a very simplistic way of looking at things. I, I think but it's the, got traction. I think the bigger factor is actually internal migration is a huge thing, which kind of comes back to the sort of the north-south divide and the fact that London and the south-east have got so far ahead of the rest of the country in the last 30 years means that people graduating and after professional level jobs have had to move to London so the population of this corner of the country has been swelling and there aren't enough houses and there aren't enough school places and 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 meanwhile, in other parts of the country, the, econo- the economy is really depressed. So I think the, sort of, the jobs crisis in one half of the country is the housing crisis in the other. So like, I think the, the sense that there is pressure on, on scarce resources is real. But I don't think it's, it's migration from outside that's causing that. I think it's the fact that people have to move to one corner of the country to kind of get the sort of life they want. Mm-hmm. And on housing, I mean, we have got a national housing crisis, but it's, it's sort of different crises around the country. So in... 
London and the South East, it's a supply crisis or a, a lack of supply crisis. And in other parts of the country, it's a quality crisis. Um, so I, I do think that there probably are some housing related issues and, and, and Brexit in the north. I'm kind of quite interested, though, in the whole, I mean, and this sort of links to jobs. The government's got a target of building a million new homes over a, a period of a parliament opposition 300,000 new homes a year and things like that but the construction sector has got around 30% shortage you know 30% vacancies at any one time and that's with the EU27 freedom mm. of movement who's going to build the homes and how either of the parties going to achieve their target if we turn the tap off to the skill coming from across the continent I mean I wouldn't think so that would obviously be a huge problem but on the upside, it's one of about 20 huge problems. So I don't think it, in <laughs> itself that's not the, the thing that's going to stop us building those million houses because there's like half a dozen other other barriers mm. between us and the successful fulfilment of that task. But yeah, obviously, it's, um, it's, a, huge, it's a huge problem. I kind of think that if, if, if there was suddenly like enough of a construction pipeline and it was reasonably guaranteed, I think the big construction companies would probably start investing in the skills and the training yeah except that they have i mean so what's quite interesting is the millions that have been spent on outreach into schools and fe colleges and things like that by the industry to try and get brits into the trades and sometimes they end up giving the money back to city hall or whoever's sort of given them the fund to go off and and do this so there is there is sort of a, a problem with getting brits to want to do this sort of stuff and construction's well paid you know and, and these are people that are going out into schools and saying look if you make it to be a sort of senior project manager on a major major development you'll be earning 150,000 pounds a year plus bonus you know it's equivalent to financial services mm. but yet yet with all that messaging we still can't get young british people to pick up that career and so does that sort of lay you know some you know to, do we put to bed the whole issue of soft fruit pickers if only we pay British people a decent wage they would come and pick our fruit is it sort of something about outdoorsy jobs and things that Brits just don't want to do a no matter how much thing. you're playing yeah a cultural thing I mean we sort of maybe we as a, as a country we think we've evolved beyond that kind of stuff we have you know building done by Irish companies and we have mm. soft fruit picking done by European immigrants and it's kind of and, and there's no connection made between and we also want this mm. this chimera of sovereign, sovereign and independence, no connection to the fact that you can't have all of these things at the same time. I don't know. What do you think, John? If you kind of look back to the, the 40s when they introduced what was meant to be the tripartite school system where you'd have, like, grammar schools for the academic kids and technical colleges teaching practical skills and secondary moderns for everyone else, and there are many reasons that's a terrible system, not mm. least that it just didn't bloody work. But a, a, a big one was that the technical colleges never happened mm. because there wasn't... We do have this kind of cultural snobbishness Around sort of practical careers, that is not that is not there in in a lot of the sort of thriving manufacturing economies of, of continental Europe, like mm. Germany, where mm. it is kind of seen as like a just as prestigious a parallel track. Mm. Whereas we don't have that here. Yeah, mm. unless you're doing PPE, you're a failure in life. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I read something a while ago that said that the single best degree course you could do in terms of your your earning potential 
was classics at Oxford <laughs> because you had an incredibly high chance of becoming like an investment banker off the back of it. And it's got nothing to do with like how valuable classics is. It's purely about the fact the kind of people who go to, to do that course then go yeah. off to do this particular career. Yeah. So it does sometimes feel like the kind of link between education and, and, and what job you do in this country is a bit yeah. broken. Mm. I could have done that, but I didn't have the Latin, that kind of thing. I mean, do you think it's possible that um, Brexit has kind of driven a new wedge between you know the remain cities and the and the and the leave suburbs and countryside in in that among liberals it used to be we must look after the disadvantaged areas of the country it's our mission it's our identity as liberals for a, to look for a fairer society and increasingly what you hear is well they voted for this so you know they deserve it i think that's a definite danger i kind of think that the one the, the, the only tiny upside I've been able to find to this whole shitstorm is the fact that for the first time in decades we are sort of talking about the disadvantaged bits of the country and like if you look at what's happened on the, on the trains in the north of England this last month oh, we just had like a fraction of the coverage of, of, mm. of mm. the smaller version of the same thing that's happened on Thameslink in London because like, all the media is based down here and also fewer people commute by train up north but partly because like the trains are so shocking to start with but you know it's the, the different bits of the country do not have the kind of resources or infrastructure that london the southeast takes for granted mm. and for the first time since the brexit referendum people are actually asking well should we be doing something about this problem but i mean you're kind of not wrong that like i think there is a a very strong well bloody sodgy then impulse mm. because also like you <laughs> I don't think some of the more prominent leavers have really helped on this one because, like, with a sort of constant sort of you know, telling Remainers that they're traitors and saboteurs and all that nonsense, it doesn't kind of inspire you to reach out to people who've 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 yeah. made this choice, does it? So mm. it's it's quite difficult to kind of get yourself past that when you're being being attacked. Does anybody have? anything approaching a post-Brexit infrastructure plan. Oh, God, you, no. You heard very, very little about it during the referendum. There's the, the infamous flannel about the NHS, a lot of abstract stuff about control. Nobody said, and we will be able to build these things for these communities and change them in this way. And there's been a sort of half-baked talk about industrial strategy that's never really gone anywhere either. Yeah, no, there's nothing. There's no, one, no one's taken this remotely seriously. But I think... In my mind, so much of it just comes back to the fact that we're so insanely over-centralised in this country. Like, almost everything goes through Whitehall. Like, it's crazy to me that the ultimate decision as to whether Leeds got a tram network in during the Blair years, that final decision was taken on Whitehall, mm. not in Leeds. And that's just baffling to me. Like, what the hell... Yes. There's the arrogance inherent in that. And I was thinking this when we were talking in the, in the news bit, when we were talking about, like, Theresa May just trying to cram everything into, into that sort of 12-hour period. There is just something... Like, she kind of embodies this sort of impulse. Like, well, I'm Prime Minister now. I get to make all the decisions. Everything has to be done my way. Mm. And actually, I think that's kind of, like, stored up a lot of problems that... London often doesn't know what's what's the best thing to do for the rest of the country. So I think we should be we should be letting like local uh, local councils take a lot of these decisions. But nobody bloody trusts the local council, so we're never going to do that. Have elected mayors sort of had any kind of shift in sort of political gravity or more of a sense that there could be more? They're so rudderless. But it's but it's also early days. I mean, they've been there a year. I think like 
if you look at the mayor of London, I think that has made a, a, a fairly big difference in that like London now has kind of an identity as a sort of you know a, a polis in a way that it didn't mm. really before, mm. and it's there is someone there banging the drum to build this railway line or whatever. I think over the longer term it will have an impact, but it's far too early to see that happening. You are amongst your other many hats that you wear. You are the king of uh, the hot take on the uh, on the, on the <laughs> statesman blog, often with uh, you know very impassioned cri de coeur on you know issues of the, of the day. You wrote a piece uh, a few months ago, headlined "Stop saying the will of the people, like the people can never be wrong." People like Coldplay and voted for the Nazis. Now we are off, we've often said on this show that the brandishing of the will of the people is one of the most tedious things. You know, if we go through with this, if Brexit does happen, will it ever be accepted that the people could be wrong, that people could take the wrong decision? I keep coming back to the the Iraq war, because if you sort of look at that, a lot more people opposed that afterwards than opposed it beforehand. Now, obviously, like, it's kind of easier to remember what, what where you voted mm. than what, what you felt about some bit of foreign policy before it happened. But I'm, I don't know. I've kind of always thought if it always goes horribly wrong, then people will change their minds. I'm just not convinced they'll necessarily sort of be aware that they've done it. Yeah. Hmm. They'll think they always thought this. Yeah. It's a weird double. Or, or they will find a way of it not being their fault at the very least. I don't think, like, we're going to get to a point where, like, anyone's going, oh, God, what have I done? Yeah. I just, I just don't think that's really sort of in human nature. They will always find which, which and this kind of bothers me because I sort of worry that that's that's where the stab in the back narrative could come from, isn't it? Yes, it's uh, like you know someone's we, we had this great Brexit, but they, they failed us. They've been sold down the river. That rhetoric's out there already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my big fear is that it all goes horribly wrong, but we blame foreigners. Increasingly, this is becoming the downer that ends every show. So we're going to try and end this show on an upper if we can. Um, it's time to choose something to go into our Brexit time capsule. This is where we stash away something for the future that we're going to miss if we leave the EU and something that we'll need if we're out. Now, John, you're our special guest, so it's your call. What's going in the Brexit time capsule? I would like to put in the interrail pass. Uh, because that's you know, it's a sort of wistful noises. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I actually don't feel very wistful because I, I went into railing at eighteen. And it was a complete fucking disaster. Like, I, like it lasted a week, <laughs> in which we Did had you get your to, we felt no, no. It was entirely self-inflicted. We failed, we failed to eat food for a couple of days. We there went to some, Amsterdam. There was some psychosomatic diarrhoea. The guy, the guy I was travelling with, um, misunderstood somebody in a bar in Barcelona and tried to throw an old man out of a window. Um, I'm going to get out on a limb and say I don't think. The interrail pass is to blame for this. No, I think Europe absolutely is innocent not. in this. Escapade. Which is why, like, despite my personal horror story, I think I just think it's a great innovation. Like, you buy a single ticket, you can go wherever you want in Europe. You can kind of explore different cities, different places. You know, meet other people. And also, like earlier this year, the European Parliament came up with this plan that you know there will be free interrail passes for every eighteen-year-old EU yeah. citizen, which is another wonderful thing we're depriving our children of. Yeah, it's free stuff for everybody but you, British kids. <laughs> well done, everybody. Well, that's the end of the show. Uh, every week we press stop on the recording on Wednesday afternoon and then something monstrous and momentous happens in, on Thursday morning. Uh, Ian, what's going to happen this week, do we think? I don't know. It, it would be something to do with some kind of internal labour machinations over this, over the stuff that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah. I can't, I'm not going to go any further than that. I w- can, can we quickly point out, by the way, that there was a whole new customs model in between the last programme and this one that David Davis came out on a Thursday night. Com- yeah, model. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Came, comes out, goes, we're going to have a big buffer zone uh we're gonna have 
twin hat regulation, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then it was dead within about sort of 18 hours. So now that the speed of the news cycle has covered this, you know, at least all of these predictions are going to have to be a bit more accurate. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that after we uh, finish recording, Ian Pacey Jr. is going to say that he's travelling to England to have an abortion. OK, well, you know, stranger things have happened. So, and in theme with that for this week's European language clip, I can't believe we've left it so long, but here is some Irish from Listen Up, Michael Power. And that's the end of our show. Now, turn up your phone to bother your fellow bus passengers volume for the theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and a roll call of our Patreon backers. It's hello and thanks from me to Jim Mallison, Chris Spencer, Nick King and Andrew Tanner. And it's a big merci bien from me to Eric Stone, Dennis Hoter, Nigel Foote and Carsten Kislat. And it's Veal and Dank from me in a full Alan Partridge style to Doug Butcher, Mark Howland, Jez St. James and Adam Harper. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was produced and presented by me, Andrew Harrison, with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Studio production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.